You're listening to Recast, the podcast from Remit Consulting. We're back for a second episode, and today we're discussing the big news from high courts to the city and how things are moving forward out of the pandemic. And the other thing we're going to be discussing is about thinking things through. Welcome to Recast. Thank you very much for joining us for our second episode. I'm Kat Lewis. I am in charge of business development at Remit Consulting, which is a management consultancy for the property industry. And I'm joined once again by Mr. Andrew Barber, who is PR wizard and happens to be one of Remit's associates, does Remit's PR and is also known as Paddy. So thank you very much for coming back to talk to me again, Paddy. You're welcome, Kat. How are you? I'm I'm not too bad. Thank you very much. How are What's you? Been, I'm very well. What's been happening in your world? Well, the big excitement is that the pubs in Wales have finally opened. So we were quite a way behind England. And um, so we're now allowed to sit outside, which is good. That is good. Yeah, you're a bit behind us. And also, one of the other things which has been happening, I've noticed anyway locally, is uh, an increase in the number of people hitting the shops now that uh, shops in, in England are open, have been trading for a couple of weeks. And I think this is perhaps also reflected in what we've seen in the most recent Remark report that uh, the team at Remark have been doing with, which has seen whilst a sort of steady, uh, same as, same old, pattern of rent collection across the board the high street did see a little bit of a jump and after 21 days the rent collection figures were about 20 percent higher than they were at the equivalent period or the equivalent time in the december quarter so that's good news um hopefully a sign of improvement on the high street and across the board that's absolutely great and i think that the the real thing is it sort it sort of feels like spring has sprung and um, and hopefully we might be uh, heading heading out. Um, although I have been told, have been warned by Laura Andrews, who uh, does a lot of our, our remote data crunching, that I mustn't get too excited um, because that 20% jump is based on quite a low or certainly lower than normal base right. rate. I mean, the, the overall figures are still about uh, 30% lower than they would be in a normal quarter, normal being pre-pandemic 2019 by this sort of stage of the quarter the figures were up in the high 90s percent collected so yes we're still a long way short of uh, where we would like to be and that's not the only retail news is it because we've heard about the Westfield High Court ruling which ruled in favour of Westfield in connection with one of their London holdings and I understand you've been reading up on it and can give us a bit more detail. I have indeed Paddy um, for those of you who are wondering what we're what we're talking about, this is really exciting because it's the first reported judgment on a landlord's ability to take enforcement action on rent, which should have been collected over the period of the moratorium and over the period of the Landlord and Tenant Code, which came in last year to encourage landlords and tenants to work together to sort this out and get out the pandemic okay. So to give you a little bit of information about the facts, the fragrance shop is the was the tenant and they were shut obviously over the periods of march to june november to december and december to april so a bash chunk of the year now they haven't actually paid any rent since april 2020 
And there's also some outstanding service charge costs in that time as well. Um, not the full time, but I think three or four months. And the exciting thing about this judgment is that it found for the landlord. And so £166,884.82. Well, that's certainly a lot of money. Um, and we've been talking a lot over the last few months about companies that can pay, won't pay, that sort of thing. How do you think this is going to impact other retailers and other occupiers, not just retailers, going forward? Because the moratorium at the moment is expected to come to an end at the end of June. So this judgment was actually really exciting from that perspective, uh, for the landlords anyway, um, because one of the things that I can actually quote was the judge said the, the, the code, which was brought in by the government to encourage working together, it is not a charter for tenants declining to pay rent. And they were very, very strong on that um, because one of the defences that the fragrance shop mounted was suggesting that uh, it was kind of premature action and it showed Westfield to be in breach of the code. Now, this is just super exciting news because, I, as, as you say, we have been worried about the, the people who are pleading the pandemic and, and using these measures designed to protect retailers and, and other occupiers who are actually in trouble and using them to benefit. So I know that there are a lot of high profile organisations out there who have actually still been trading and have still not been paying rent. So from that perspective, it shows the courts are going to be strong on it. The only thing I would kind of caveat that with is that this is a summary judgment. So the court ruled without a trial and cases with more complex facts might need to go to trial and that will have slightly different judicial scrutiny and things like that. So it's it's one to be cautiously excited about, I think, for the landlords. And that's obviously not the only big property story this week. Um, another story coming out of London was the plans of the City of London Corporation to develop 1,500 homes in the square mile over the next few years. And the City has a fascinating history of evolution and adaption to change, and it'll be very interesting over the next few years to see how the city changes as we emerge from the pandemic. Yes, I think so. When when I actually first came to London, um, I didn't know about the whole thing about the city being um, fairly deserted at weekends, and I know it's been completely deserted in the pandemic. Um, so I actually booked my parents a hotel in the city, and I thought I'd show them round because it's really bustling and I've, I absolutely fell in love with the place. And I took them around Leadenhall Market and they actually said to me, gosh, are we supposed to be here? Because it was just so deserted. What time of the day was this? <laughs> this was on a like, Saturday evening. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. Not, not many residents around there. Not lo- Well, I, I know uh, from the articles I've been reading, uh, 8,000 permanent residents in the city so this 1500 homes will really change the vibe there's also been mention of the city trying to embrace the arts a little bit more which will certainly impact the bankers playground yeah i heard also they're looking to bring in sort of creative industries and and maybe technology industries and that would be interesting because right on the doorstep of course you've got the city fringe which is well known for that whole sort of prop tech technology vibe which is is going on in places like clerkenwell and farringdon but I know, Kat, you've been chatting to someone who knows a bit more about the history of the office and the city itself, haven't you? I have indeed, yes. So one of our associates, Rob Harris, has just published an absolutely fab book called London's Global Office Economy, From Clerical Factory to Digital Hub. 
And it's all about how London's office environment has changed over the years from the 16th century till now. So it's full of really, really interesting research drawn from Rob's 30 plus years in the commercial property industry, including his work with the Greater London Authority on their office policy. And I was lucky enough to catch up with Rob last week, where I was also joined by Melissa Hutchison, who heads up Remit's ESG service line and has a range of experience in property and asset management for both commercial and residential portfolios. So we had a little bit of a chat about the changing environment in the city and how it will impact ESG goals. So thank you both very, very much for joining me. First off, I wanted to just have a quick chat with you, Rob, about your book, which I have been working my way through, and it's absolutely lovely. But I wanted to just ask you a little bit about how you came to write it and, um, and yeah, and what's your favourite bit, really? <laughs> thank you. Um, how I came to write it, it's a history book, essentially. It's a history book about real estate. Uh, and my favourite bits are about the, um, the past, and how things that have happened in the past are, are being talked about today. You know, we've had agile working for, for 35 years, and it's being talked about now as hybrid working. Um, you know, we've had technology for, for 40 years, and it's now being talked about in a different kind of way. We've had offices for 400 years in a modern sense, but they're being talked about in a different kind of way. So the thing that I'll enjoy about it is the way that you can talk about the past and the future in, in the same way. Uh, and not keep thinking that we're we're facing a unique circumstance today. So COVID is just another singular event. In the context of this book and history, it's nothing special. It's just another singular event, less important than some of the events that have happened in the past. That's exactly what I think a couple of people were saying at the MIPIM Leaders Perspective Summit. Pandemics are historically a catalyst for change and uh, pretty much sort of, honey, you're not special. And I did, I, I really liked to think about Charles Lamb and him complaining to Wordsworth about his working hours. He was in the office from 10 o'clock in the morning with only two hours for lunch and he didn't leave until 11 o'clock at night and how awful it was. And the other thing that I thought was really nice and painted a lovely picture was that you said about how the West End developed as a sort of an alternative to, to people in the, I think you said the full-blooded commercialism of the city, um, where, where the well-to-do really didn't want to be involved in all the money-making bits. They wanted to sort of swan around, which I loved because that's exactly how I feel in the West End. <laughs> so, but I also wanted to ask you really what's changed because obviously we've been, we've been discussing that the city are going to put some homes in what has changed? Is it just the technology or, or have, have people actually changed? The, the city corporation, the body that runs the city, has been thinking about its future for quite some time. One of the central planks that's been on the agenda is the character of the city, um, because it did in the 19th century, you know, all the residents left. Uh, I think in the sort of 1950s and 70s and 80s, there was as few as 1,500 homes in the city of London. And so what's very much a soulless place? I think what's happened over the last 10 years is that the Corporation of London has woken up to the fact it is part of a city which needs to compete on a world scale. We've seen it in a business sense. So tech firms are moving into the city, banks are moving to the West End. The whole thing's becoming much more fluid. When I, when I started work, there were two markets. It was the West End and the city. And in, in between, there was a dead zone. It didn't even have a name at that point. It's just where the lawyers were, we used to call it. That's lawyer land. <laughs> And, uh, and that's just changed dramatically over 30 years. And the city cannot be an island of business any longer. It has to be something more richer, more pleasant. We talk about a lot about placemaking today, and it has to become a place. It, ca it can't just be a place of commerce. It has to be a place for people. And so I think the corporation, to answer your question, have woken up to this fact. And of course, a part of that mix for the future has to be housing. 
Yeah, so I, I like the the other thing that I really like in the book is where you say about the contact. And I know, Melissa, that's that's also close to your heart, because when we've been discussing ESG related things, we've really spoken about how we need to view it in context. I think I can cut in a little bit. I actually think the point about placemaking is so interesting. Obviously, my background is in sort of retail destination. And I started my property career in the city. And you only have to have worked there for a little while to know that on Thursday and Friday night, it is absolutely rammed. Saturday comes, dead zone. There is nothing going on. So I think this concept of adding residential to the area, which fits in with the more general themes across the real estate industry of work, live, play, everyone's trying to create that kind of 15 minute city and you can see it all across different estates where they try and create a a place where the idea is that you would work live and play all in the same area but cat to your point about viewing things in context absolutely and one of the things we talk about how ESG cannot stand alone it is not one tick box on the end of a list and really it just kind of popped my mind when I read about um, the city of London's plans for 1500 homes you know, fantastic to use empty space, but they've just recently um, in October 2020 also released their goals for um, zero net carbon, which they have stated will be by 2040, which is 10 years earlier than the UK goals, which fantastic. I think it's an amazing uh, aspirational goal. And my first thought was, how are you going to do both of them at the same time? Construction releases a huge amount of carbon emission, and that's not to say that we shouldn't do it, but it but it does. Um, refurbishment is much better than new builds, so it's fantastic they're going to refurbish offices. You know, refurbishing um, a building rather than building new can take thirteen times less carbon um, emissions through the process. So I'm very pro uh, refurbishment and redevelopment rather than new builds. And I just wondered how the city of London is going to have both goals tied together um, to build all these new houses, but also to decrease their carbon emissions in such a short period of time. Have you got any insights on that, Rob? I wouldn't say insights necessarily, no. Um, but the, the fact is that uh, some office buildings are not fit for the future, either because they're so very old or because they've um, they've been designed for 1980s Big Bang agenda, i.e. very large, very deep floors. So for two reasons, some buildings will be obsolete. Um, so I take your point, Melissa, but it's either conversion or knock down and rebuild. I absolutely agree. I'm just not sure how they plan to go about it. And it wasn't really a comment of on the City of London individually, but more just this general trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because you're right, some of the office buildings, unfortunately, are obsolete, particularly if we are going to move to a world that needs more flexible space, which we currently don't have. We do, actually. We, we, we have a lot more than we think. A lot of the old buildings, and when I say old, I mean late 19th century buildings and some early 20th century buildings, they're coming back into vogue because they have natural light, they have large windows, they have natural ventilation, uh, they're two or three stories, so they don't need a lift necessarily. Um, so, you know, for, for SMEs, for small startups, for, you know, creators, th- there's a lot of scope for converting those buildings for that kind of use. It's only really post-war we started building buildings all the same format, design, layout. The, the, the kind of notion of, of that monolithic space is gone. 
That's actually really interesting because Historic England um, last year released a paper saying that buildings have to be recycled and reused to kind of tackle climate change. And their point is exactly that, actually, that we have a lot of historic buildings that people won't touch because it costs a lot. Also, there's a financial issue there that to redevelop a historic building, um, even if it might you know, with some work, be able to stand the test of time. It stood probably for hundreds of years already. It will probably continue. Um, VAT on construction is 20%, whereas for a new build, um, VAT is nothing. So there isn't a financial incentive to give those old buildings the love and care that they deserve to make them, you know, last another day. I've, I actually wondered if you had, given your statement on the older buildings being more suitable, if you had an opinion on current office buildings being changed into residential there have been some reports and i'm not saying this is true across the board but some reports that actually they're not fit for purpose because they have huge windows so it you know they it's not just letting light in but you're very much on show it has communal air conditioning and there is actually a quote from the guardian that i thought was quite extreme but it's like living in an open prison um, which was about converting office blocks to homes for kind of um, social housing because they're just not made for that in the first place. Well, the, the legislation to which you refer was the extension to permission permitted development rights in 2013. Yes, that's And right. at that point, um, the City of London, Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea and a handful of other boroughs were exempted. But everywhere else, it was it was it was um, it was a free for all. And so what happened in outer London, your Kingston's, your Enfields, your, your Dagenham's and whatever, they, the de- developers just piled onto these old office blocks like locusts and they just swept them up and converted them with very little thought to, you know, design, quality, those kinds of things. And I've seen some horrible examples of, of, of office to, to resi conversions, really horrible. So I completely agree. There are some, some good examples, don't get me wrong, there are some good examples around, some very good examples. Uh, but they tend to be in the higher value, higher profile locations um, where, you know, devel- developers can make the added costs stack up. But you go out to the outer London areas and beyond London, and there are some really poor examples of, of office to resi conversion. Having said that, you know, um, I've seen equally a lot of towers go up. Do you know there are over 200 resi towers going up in London now? A vast number of them are clustered around Greenwich, Lambeth, um, Southwark. And I'm not sure, it's a bit of a Dubai syndrome here. I'm not sure to what quality they're being built in my personal view is that we could be building a problem for the future this sparks back to a conversation we were having earlier today but where we were talking about exactly that quality where you have buildings built hundreds of years ago that still stand the test of time Mm. and then newer buildings that are being forced into redevelopment just 20 30 years later firstly that doesn't seem very financially responsible but also from a esg perspective where you're looking at embodied carbon that is a giant waste of of development, uh, particularly because these buildings are not built for demolition. We can't keep rebuilding, demolishing, um, which produce, by the way, like millions of tonnes of waste of waste a year. Um, demolition is one third of all waste from the UK that goes to landfill. So it really is a, is a problem. We can't keep demolishing or uh, redeveloping all the time. And there are some engineers and project managers who are starting to look into um, building buildings for flexibility. They are designed to be changed. They aren't designed to have one floor plate. Um, And the Cube um, in Berlin is one of those examples where they talk, if you ever go and look at it, about their enhanced flexibility because they are designed, it's designed to accommodate temporary structures and tenants that shift and satellite offices. And um, they're what they 
they use the term porosity, as in it's very porous. So there's many different ways to get between different floors and to enter the building. And so their hope is that over time, the building can be reconfigured many times, which will allow it a longer life than otherwise. But also, um, and I couldn't find anything about the cube on it, but I, I'm sure it was Drains and Summers who were part of the building uh, team who talk about um, the ability to be demolished. That when we're building these buildings, thinking about how it will be taken apart will allow the materials either to be recycled or reused in some way, which at the minute, although we talk a lot about the life cycle of property, people sort of tend to ignore the demolition bit and just think, oh, we'll knock it down. Um, but actually, a lot of the materials, even if the building isn't fit for purpose, the materials might be fit for purpose. And I just think that that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I hope that when they're doing the redevelopments of kind of office spaces as things change in the city of London, that they are looking at how can we make it as flexible as possible so that the buildings can get the longest life as possible to fit with all of their other aims. But one of the issues here is and there, are, there are thousands of issues out there, but one of the issues is, is planning, town planning. Uh, and over the last 30 years, planning's had its powers stripped away, stripped away, stripped away. We talked about PDR earlier. That was one of the most recent, most fundamental changes in planning for years because it took, it took the ability of a planner to say no away. And that, that no could be for a crap reason or it could be a very, very good reason. But there, were, there was a pinch point in the system where you had to go through that checking process. And we're but then we've ended up with poor quality stock. So it's, you can't win and <laughs> either point way. Is, also, also, Melissa, you lose that holistic thing. Mm. Planning people, they look at the whole, the whole area, yeah. the whole city, the whole economy. Um, whereas a developer will be looking at his or her site and his or her value, and that's it. That's such an interesting point. Thank you very much, both, and, and thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been really, really interesting, and I look forward, look forward to seeing what happens in the next three hundred years, Rob. I will be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kat. Thanks, Thanks Kat. Thanks. Thanks, Kat. That was a very interesting chat you had. Yeah, it was great to catch up with Rob Harris and Melissa Hutchison. If our listeners would like to purchase London's global office economy from Clerical Factory to Digital Hub, it is available as an ebook or in hard copy from Routledge. Now, we've come to that stage of the podcast where on the last episode, we talked about Kat's cliches. So I can't let this go without asking you, what cliches have you got for us this time? Well, I um I had a bit of a think. I had a few few front runners, um, and th- it's more of a cliched sentiment than one one thing that's said a lot. Although there are some brilliant ways of putting it. So, my cat's cliche for this week is about planning and not jumping straight in without considering the consequences. So not jumping in feet first. Not jumping in feet first. Uh, I think. One of the ones that I I quite like is proper planning prevents pretty poor performance. Pretty poor. Pretty poor. Um, and the reason why I've picked this is firstly because all of, I mean all of these things we're, we've been talking about really tie into that. Um, but um, as w- when we were first discussing the moratorium, I think we we spoke about the fact that it was well-meaning. It was intended to take pressure off people who were really struggling and and tenants who were really struggling and prevent them from just going bump. But actually what it did was it it hadn't entirely thought through all of the people who'd be affected and how how it would how it would really work. So 
the the concept of it being abused wasn't necessarily um fully considered in my opinion uh, and the other thing that wasn't necessarily fully considered was the fact that a lot of landlords are pension funds and yeah. and how that moratorium would affect actually the people on the ground. I think there's still outside of the bubble of commercial property a misunderstanding as to who the landlords are and people don't necessarily realise that it's the likes of you and me and people who have pensions who are effectively the, the, the owners of this property through our pension funds and that's still something which isn't appreciated outside as the, the commercial property bubble. Absolutely, yeah. So so I think that's that's my cliche of the week. And um, the other one that I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit was um, how that affects our clients because Remit Consulting is, of course, a management consultancy firm. And a lot of the time what we're having um, and what we're finding we're saying to clients is basically just take a deep breath and have a think. Um, because a lot of the time there are deadlines and everything feels incredibly pressured and actually rushing things through um, is not is not the way to do things. So often we have clients who say, oh, well, we don't need the mobilization stage. That's three weeks. That will take three weeks off our procurement. But the problem there is that then if you don't have the mobilization stage, you lose so much of the power of the implementation and you lose so much of the power of um the momentum that you've got from the project so you end up in a sort of a business as usual stage um without actually having finished implement implementing your system or your new property manager or whatever else so proper planning is vital proper planning is vital um and a really really good example of this um we had a client years ago who had a systems uh, demonstration and a lot of their tenants had very long titles and the title field in the in the property management system was limited to i think 30 characters which meant that it couldn't store the titles of the tenants of this particular client oh and that was a great example of gosh thank goodness we've realized that we need this before we've spent lots of money on a system that can do everything else apart from accurately record our tenants' names. Yeah, that would have been a disaster. So I think that brings us to a close for today, Paddy. It does indeed. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for allowing me on to come and talk to you. Well, thank you very much. It's always nice to see someone in the great wide world outside these four walls. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And soon we'll be back to normal and soon we can all meet up and uh, looking forward to that. Indeed, looking forward to an episode of Freecast with a glass of wine in person. Yep, well, let's do it. Okay, I will talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you do have any ideas for other things you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast, or if you'd like to discuss the things in person in more detail, please drop me an email at katherine.lewis at remitconsulting.co.uk or drop me a tweet at remitcat with a K. Yeah, and Catherine.Lewis with a K as well. Okay, good to talk to you. See you soon. Cheers, buddy. Bye.